This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Welcome back into Play by Playcast. You're officially hitting play if you've caught every episode for the 120th time. Thanks as always for doing that. Clicking subscribe or download and joining us here on a Friday morning. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. A professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Gadet, the television and radio voice of the Ball State University Cardinals, and today our guest is Rich Hollenberg of ESPN and the Tampa Bay Rays broadcast. And uh, I don't have a lot to get to before we get to Rich, so we're going to dive right in today um, with Rich. Similar in some respects to the conversation we had on this podcast last week with Roy Philpot. if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that one and go back and check it out in the archives of a week ago. Um, but Roy talks in that episode about not the non-traditional but unconventional way that he wound up doing play-by-play. A little bit later in life, kind of at about 30 years old, decided he was going to go the play-by-play route. He was already in sports media but was not a you know, full-blown play-by-play guy. Um, and, he, and he dove headlong later than a lot of people do when they come right out of college and, and decide they're going to go that play-by-play route. Rich Hollenberg is in a similar situation, or at least was in a similar situation, and he will detail that for us as we go through this podcast. I don't want to um, spoil spoil the surprise. I mean, you're going to hear about it coming up here soon anyway. Um, but, but he'll take you kind of through the winding path of his career, and then we'll dive into uh, how he wound up at ESPN, how you wind up at ESPN, and uh, the ins and outs of what a broadcast on television and uh, at ESPN should sound like and uh, what he works to do to uh, to make his sound like that every time he puts the headset on. So without further ado, let's dive into it this week on the 120th edition of Play by Playcast with ESPN's Rich Hollenberg. We will start where we do with many a Syracuse graduate. Rich is another one that we have here on the pod with his time in central New York and what it was like growing up uh, in that broadcast network and society and environment uh, when he was a student with the Orange. I am a firm believer and I'm a member in good standing of what (laughs) I call and what most people know of as the Newhouse Mafia. However, I was not really entrenched in WAER. I never had any aspirations, coming out of college at least, to be a play-by-play guy. Uh, but I was going to school with guys like Dave Pash and Dave Jagler. So those were, you know, my contemporaries. And maybe because I was so intimidated by how talented they already were that I said to myself, I might want to go the studio path instead of the play-by-play path to, uh, to have uh, my chance at success. And then, you know, I accidentally almost happened into the play-by-play role uh, many, many years later. But the, the environment in Newhouse is, is second to none. You know, um, whenever I'm introducing myself to someone and they find out that I'm another Syracuse grad, 
in the sportscasting business, I always say, don't hold it against me because we're <laughs> there's so many of us now. Yeah. But I think all that is, Joel, is a testament to what kind of product they have at Newhouse. And I know in the 20-plus years since I've graduated, it's only gotten better and bigger thanks to uh, all the people who came through there and now prop it up and support it. Um, Mike Tirico comes to mind, obviously, but there are many, many more people. Um, and I count myself very proud and honored to be one of those people who um, love to go back, love to give back, and uh, love to pay it forward whenever possible. How did the uh, how did the mafia help you along the uh, the course of your career? And I guess earlier in your career, uh, particularly when you're trying to get a foothold and, and get yourself going. Right. So my first job in media, quote unquote, uh, I moved back home to New Jersey, and I was working for a company that uh, is now defunct, and you'll know why once I explain what it was. <laughs> someone someone your age wouldn't remember this, but in my generation, there was a company called Sports Phone. Why don't you just tell me the name of the movie you selected? And you dialed a, a pay phone number. And it tells you the scores. Yeah, for yeah. all your sports news instantly, dial 976-1313. And uh, I worked for them for my first year out of college, and I, was, I got the chance to cover the New Jersey Nets for them, uh, which was kind of a premium level of subscriber for, for, their, uh, for their customers. And that was terrific because I got to hang around a professional sports team for, you know, the better part of a season and a half, I want to say. And I was 22 years old. So that was a terrific learning experience. But my first job in TV was directly linked to the Newhouse Mafia. I had a professor there, Bob Lissett, who has since retired, but uh, I still count as a friend and a mentor, who called me up one day, knew that I was still anxious to cut my teeth in TV and said, uh, there's a classmate of yours, Mike Tassell, who is working out in uh, KFBB TV. It's the ABC affiliate in Great Falls, Montana. They're looking for a weekend sports reporter. Are you interested? And of course, my answer was yes. And that's one of the things that uh, I base all my speeches off of whenever I speak to groups of students and aspiring sportscasters. I always say, just say yes. There are no small jobs only people who are looking to move onward and upward. So uh, sight unseen, I sent my resume tape over to, uh, to the station there, and uh, the news director, the late, great Dick Pompa, called me up, and I had my phone interview, and without having to get on an airplane, he hired me a week later, and I joined a fellow Newhouse alum, Mike Tassell, who's now a real successful reporter out in Sacramento, um, over at KFBB in Great Falls, Montana, market 172. So uh, I, I was able to say that my very first job out of college in television was directly correlated to my connections with the Newhouse Mafia. And then, as it turns out, my second job, six months later, came via that same exact route. There's a, a sportscaster who now works for the Golf Channel. His name is Ryan Burr. And Ryan had a job in Tampa Bay as a sports director of a local cable station. And he was moving on. And... That job was a long lineage of former Syracuse alum. Um, I could go down the list, but Todd Callis is one of them. He's now the play-by-play -play guy for the Houston Astros. Um, there's a number of Syracuse grads who had that job. I ended up lucky enough to continue that lineage, uh, and that goes all the way back almost 20 years ago. 1996 was when I took that job. So uh, 
really my first two jobs in TV, I could directly say, thank you, Syracuse, and thank you, Newhouse School, because otherwise I would never have even found out about them, let alone had the chance to get those jobs. A couple questions on your, your TV time. And uh, the, the first one is what you liked about it and what you ultimately didn't like about it that, that made you not want to be a studio guy or a, a sports on news guy uh, at the end of your run there. Well, that is a great question um, because it's hard to say I didn't like anything because you have to love this to do it, especially in this day and age, as you well know. Uh, if you're not in it for the love of the profession and the love of sports, uh, then you're going to be pretty miserable because the hours are bad, uh, the pay is not great, and, uh, and it's really taxing, especially if you have a family and you're trying to support other people as well as yourself. So that might be the one thing that I would say I don't like, although at the time I certainly had the rose-colored glasses on. I didn't think about or know any of that. Um, what I loved about it was just cutting my teeth and having the freedom and ability to practice all the things that I had worked on at Newhouse and felt like I was ready for, but yet really didn't know uh, until I got those jobs. So those jobs proved to me that I was actually able to do this and, and earn a living at it and actually do a serviceable job. Um, but, you know, the thing about uh, working in a TV studio, even back then, and we're talking 25 years ago, I got the sense that a, that wasn't really where I wanted to be. I wanted to be at the action. I wanted to be at the games more than being in a studio talking about the games. So that was something that kind of helped narrow my focus, so to speak, on where I wanted my career to go. Uh, but at the same time, it also afforded me the opportunity to see what else was out there in the world. That was my first job. My second job, I got to do everything. I was the ultimate one-man bander when I moved down here working for what was then uh, Vision Cable, then became Time Warner Channel 7, and then morphed into Bay News 9, which is what it is now in the Tampa Bay area, um, I got to do everything. I hosted a call-in show. I hosted a weekly show for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I called play-by-play -play for any and all college sports, spring training, single-A baseball, you name it, I covered it. And, and that's what I loved about that job. But it's also, it's also what was most challenging about that job was I didn't get to, although I was scratching a lot of itches per se, I didn't get to focus on the things that I really wanted to focus on. So uh, that's sort of a, of a roundabout answer um, to your question because there, some of the things that I loved were some of the things that I also ultimately realized that I didn't like or at, at very least that maybe it's not fair to say I didn't like them. But I realized that those were things that I didn't want to necessarily uh, direct my career in that in that path. What did you cover, did though, you cover? when you're out in Montana? And, and I asked that from the standpoint of, like, how did you then learn and how does it apply now uh, to asking questions of people that are, you know, not headline names you, know, you can't google people and find out everything i mean you couldn't even google back then um but like what did it teach you to cover whatever's out in montana uh in terms of how you prepped for it how you gathered information how you kind of i don't want to say cultivated sources but cultivated sources got people to talk to you um and how is that still applicable to what you do now on a much larger scale that's a a great question and all the things that you just named joel are things that I was able to put into practice and had to 
more than ever uh, when I was 22 years old, because unbeknownst to me, I was learning on the job how to be a better reporter and how to be a better announcer and how to be a better sportscaster for lack of a more uh, focused or generalized term. Uh, my first sportscast on the air, I will never forget this as long as I live, uh, my first sportscast I led with the rodeo, and my second story was American Legion Baseball. So that gives you an idea of what kind of sports I was covering <laughs> in, Great, in Great Falls, Montana. And I'm a, I'm a Jewish kid from New Jersey covering a rodeo in Montana. So I was the ultimate fish out of water. But what that taught me was, you know, you have to treat that situation the same way I'm treating my current situation right now, covering the Tampa Bay Rays during baseball season and covering major college sports during basketball season. Uh, those people who I was talking to, it was important to them at that moment. And just like it's important to the players and the coaches and the managers who I deal with now, that is their life. And, and I am just uh, uh, an onlooker and a bystander and someone who needs to document that and pay respect to that uh, the best way I can through my journalism degree and my journalism profession. And in a way, Joel, it's all, it sounds a little cliche to put it this way, but I always think back to the famous Joe DiMaggio anecdote when people would say to him during his 56-game hitting streak, you know, why don't you take a day off? And his answer was simple, because I might be coming to the ballpark one day and there might be a fan in the stands who's seeing me and the Yankees play for the very first time. And I want that person, that fan, to remember that. I don't want them to leave thinking, oh, Joe DiMaggio, what a bum, he took a day off. I wanted every fan to have the experience that they were hoping they could have. And that's in some strange way how I correlate how I dealt with the people I dealt with back then 25-plus years ago, and it still carries true to this game today and these games that I cover as a professional covering major college sports and, and obviously major league baseball as well. Did you learn how to write back then in your career too? And is it important to doing play-by-play -play in, I mean, you're not writing on the air, but just, I, I don't know. Is, is there a way that it translates? There is an absolute direct line that translates. And, and that's another point that I bring up that is absolutely critical. And I wouldn't necessarily say I learned how to write when I was in those jobs in the beginning. I learned how to write at Syracuse. And that is one of the things at the very top, if not the top of the list of things that I can thank the Newhouse School for. Um, I was not allowed back in the day. I was not allowed in front of a camera as far as classwork goes until I was a junior. Everything up until then, my freshman and sophomore years, focused on news gathering and writing. Uh, and, and that frustrated me at the time because, like any aspiring sportscaster, get me on TV, get me in front of a camera, get a microphone in my hand. And you were able to do that if you were enterprising. Uh, UUTV was there uh, and things like that. But I was not able to get in front of a camera until my junior year in college. And that's what taught me how to write more than anything else. Luckily uh, and unluckily, obviously I would have loved to have jumped into TV immediately following my graduation in the spring of 93, but there weren't any jobs for me to find at the time. So my first real paying job in the quote-unquote media was working for the Associated Press in New York City. So I got to work in Rockefeller Center at the AP for a year, and you better believe that I was 
thanking my lucky stars that I had that kind of a writing background because I would have been exposed as a complete fraud at the AP if I had not had that experience. So writing is critical, and I use it in my daily life. Um, I love writing letters. I love um, writing notes. And I do as much as you need to be extemporaneous, especially when you're calling games. But I'm a pre- and post-game host for the Tampa Bay Rays also. I do a fair amount of scripting when I'm doing those shows as well. Whatever I can script, intros, uh, bumps to break, things like that. Uh, so I still use a fair amount of teleprompter in that portion of my professional life. And writing for that is critical. I take a tremendous amount of pride in how well I write and how well I can convey my thoughts onto the page and then ultimately onto the prompter and into what the fans who are watching my shows see and hear. How does that impact, uh, I guess, vocabulary when you're doing play-by-play too? I mean, do you, do you just feel like you've got more words at your disposal? And how would you uh, suggest to somebody who, like, I don't know, let's say is a 31-year-old play-by-play announcer at Ball State University, um, I- I- improve writing at whatever juncture in your career, um, expand vocabulary, be able to describe and paint more vivid pictures? Uh, what's the best way to go about doing it? Well, first of all, I have no idea who you're talking about. It's got to be someone and every person. But if there was a person like that, I would say just keep your ears open. Listen as much as you can possibly listen to everybody else. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to someone else's broadcast and caught a phrase or a term that they use. And there are so many of them in different sports. You know, a way to describe a certain play could be described a half dozen different ways by a half dozen different play-by-play men. Um, And you can go up and down the list. And sometimes I just make mental notes, like, ooh, I really like that. I've never called it that type of terminology versus the way I always call it, because the one thing you never want to do when you're in this business, Joel, is be boring. And one of the ways to avoid being boring is vocabulary and using different words. And the one thing that I took away, listen, in my generation, probably generations long after me, uh, I think Bob Costas is the absolute, not just the gold standard, he's the platinum standard when it comes to that. That's who I modeled my, not necessarily my play-by-play, but my, my hosting ability, I model it after Bob Costas because I don't think ever for one second did he take for granted that his audience wanted him to dumb things down. I think he held his audience in high regard, and to that end, I think he was not afraid of using bigger and better vocabulary to describe things where some people might look at it on the page as a written word and be like, uh, that's very highfalutin, or that's kind of hyperbolic, or, you know, that's, you know, he sounds like a muckety-muck when he uses that term. Why doesn't he just simplify it? Well, maybe in another area, it, it's better if it's simplified, but when you're hearing someone using more flowery terminology and play-by-play and in, in, uh, in hosting a show like Bob has done so well, if not better than anybody over the last 20 to 30 years, I think it elevates a broadcast and, and it kind of, you know, a high tide raises all boats. I think it, it in some way maybe challenges the viewer and everyone working around you to say, you know what, it's not only okay to use vocabulary and use different terms and different phrases but it's encouraged and if we all did it we'd all be the better for it so bob is kind of the 
it's the high priest, as far as I'm concerned, of, of someone doing that. And I aspire to do it, and I try to do it uh, in just about each and every telecast that I do, so much so that I have a joke, uh, an on-running joke with my analyst, Arrested Estrada, on my pre- and post-game shows for the Rays. I usually, he calls it SAT words. I usually <laughs> drop an SAT word in just about every show we do. And obviously, doing 150-plus baseball games a year, two shows every game, that's over 300 shows that we're doing for the Rays baseball season. That's a lot of vocabulary words you got to come up with. So uh, vocab is, is, you know, of the utmost importance to me, and I take a lot of pride in that. Um, and alliteration is another thing that I'm a big, big fan of. Um, it, 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 you know, I think it piques the, the viewer's interest when you're able to couple words together that start with the same letter. There's something pleasing to that. And maybe it's just that it's pleasing to me, and so I assume that it's pleasing to everyone who's watching and listening to me. And so far, nobody's complained enough to the point where I've stopped using it, so I'm just going to keep doing it until someone does. There you go. Students in Pinellas County, uh, you can do your SAT prep by watching the Rays. It's all That's right. comes together. Uh, I want to move to a, 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 an interesting note I found in your career, and I think if I can quote Bill Maher, I don't know it for a fact, I, I, I just know it's true that you've got to be the first person on this podcast who's been on HSN. Um, uh, you know what? At this point, uh, I've, I'm trying to wear that as a badge of honor because uh, <laughs> I, did have, I did have a lot of good times. I, and so let, let's state for the record, it is not only true, but it is a fact. Um, I, I, I kind of accidented my way into that job, too. Uh, I was hosting a show on Fox Sportsnet, and that was when Fox Sportsnet had just started. We're talking 1999, I want to say it was. And it was so new that they didn't have their own studio space. So they were actually leasing a studio at HSN's headquarters in St. Petersburg. And I was the host of the show. And about a year after that show started, um, we were coming to kind of a natural closure of the show. It wasn't going to be continuing in its way, shape, or form. And HSN approached me and said, hey, you know, we've watched you kind of from a little bit of a distance. Uh, we love what you do. Would you want to be a host on HSN? And I said, no, I don't sell things on TV for a living. I'm a sportsman. And they said, well, we just won the NFL contract, and we want you to host our Monday night football show, and you're going to be traveling with Monday night football every season. You'll be doing your show on the field, and you'll be interviewing a Hall of Fame football player every single week. And I said, where do I sign? <laughs> True story, and I'm not just using this to name drop. Uh, through a, a couple of different connections, I was able to get in touch with Al Michaels. And I called out before I accepted that job. And I said, am I doing the right thing, or am I torpedoing my career before it really ever got off the ground by doing this? And he said, 10 years ago, and keep in mind, again, this is like 2000. He said, 10 years ago, I would have said, you're crazy. But the walls are starting to come down. There's a lot of crossover and bleed over in, in different mediums. And I would say, you know, strike while the iron's hot and go for it. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't. But if it does, it could be great for you. And I did that job for two years. And uh, it was a tremendous learning experience. There is no teleprompter at Home Shopping Network. Everything is live without a net. So the biggest thing I took away from my time there was – the ability to be extemporaneous. Um, reading off a teleprompter is an art form in and of itself, and I don't think it gets the amount of 
respect that it deserves for how difficult it is, but being able to speak off the top of your head is a whole other ball of wax. And uh, I'm very fortunate that I've had both of those experiences and opportunities to try to hone my craft on both of those ends. HSN gave me the ability to do that. The other thought that I had when I saw that was the standpoint of, like, you've got to sell something, you've got to get somebody to keep watching so that they buy it, and then I'm thinking about sports, and I'm like, well, if it's a terrible game and it's a blowout, you need to keep somebody from changing the channel and sell them on whatever you're talking about. And I guess that kind of folds into the being extemporaneous part of that. Uh, so I guess what did you learn about that, and, and how do you do that? You know, the how do you do that part is the most difficult part because I don't think there's any specific, um, you know, list or, or metrics you can check off. I just think it's be prepared. At the end of the day, being prepared is your best friend because if you study up on anything, selling a product on HSN, prepping for a rodeo in Great Falls, Montana, um, or getting ready for a Big 12 game at Allen Fieldhouse for the first time in your career, the one commonality, the one tie that binds all of that together is your prep work beforehand. And I am a research hound, and I, I love that. I embrace that part of it, the quote-unquote hard work part. You know, do all your hard work when no one's watching so that you can make it look easy when everyone is watching. Uh, Mike Tirico is a phenomenal example of that uh he's someone i learned from when you make your your boards for a, a basketball game um you're you go in knowing that if you use 10 percent of the information that's on those boards in front of you during any given game you've done a good job because there's no way you're going to get in 100 percent or even close to 100 percent and if you're being truly honest with yourself the fan watching that game doesn't want or need all the 100% of the material that you've digested and then put in front of you to have access to. But the moment where the nugget of, of information is called for and you have access to that either in your head or on the paper in front of you, that's gold. And sometimes that could even make your career. That could be the moment that someone's watching that they say, wow, that was really impressive that he had that kind of recall at that instant of and and that's what propels you forward in your career and gives you more and more confidence that you can handle the big situation and the big moment in a game or whatever the situation may be. So uh, if there's anything I would I would recommend to anybody in any field whether you're shop on on home shopping network or working for ESPN or Fox Sports or wherever it is it's do your homework, be prepared, and know that at some point in time, whether it's that moment or moments after that, you're going to be ready to hit that home run or slam dunk it when the moment calls for it. And, and the only way to be ready is to be prepared. Let's jump off that and, and springboard off that here. Uh, let's talk about college basketball, and in particular uh, where you are employed now with ESPN. Uh, I, I guess the, the million-dollar question for a lot of people out there is how does one uh, become a play-by-play -play broadcaster for, uh, for the mothership? Uh, you lie and you cheat and you steal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm only half-joking, maybe a little less than half-joking. 
but the way that I did it, um, it was also, again, um, I hate to make this sound like it's, uh, it's an advertisement for Syracuse, but uh, I, I do give a fair amount of credit to Syracuse and the Newhouse School. I was extraordinarily ambitious, and when I did kind of come to my natural um, end point of home shopping, and, and as much as I appreciated my time there, I knew that I wasn't long for that business, and I wanted to really go full-time into sports casting. I still kind of kept a toe dipped in the sports casting water uh, with some ESPN2 events and things like that, but they were more fringe type of events. So when I left HSN, I left without a safety net. Uh, I left knowing I'm going to either, you know, live by my sword proverbially or die by the sword, but I'm going to get into sportscasting full time. So the first thing I did was, who do I know who went to Syracuse who might be able to help me? And as it turns out, a couple of people at ESPN um, who were in management and decision-making positions were from Syracuse. And I got on the phone and I, I was able to go up and, and, and meet with some people in Bristol and I explained my situation to them. And they said, you know, we could hire you right now for ESPN News, but you'd be making $30,000 a year and you'd be living in Bristol. And I was already married and had a couple of kids at the time. And um, I didn't want to do that to my family. That was a, a personal decision. Uh, if I was single and younger, maybe I would have. But at that point in time, that was not something that appealed to me enough to pull the trigger. But what she said to me at the time was, you know, there's something brewing um, at ESPN where we might need more people in the Southeast. And without tipping her hand too much, that was the advent of ESPNU and then ultimately the SEC network a few years after that. And uh, later that summer, she, so P.S., she said, I'm going to take your, your reel and I'll pass it along to all the right people. And basically, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. Hmm. And later that summer, I got a call from uh, a gentleman by the name of Chris Farrow, who no longer works at ESPN. But anybody who might be listening to this who does work for ESPN knows the legend of Chris Farrow. And he called me and he said, hey, do you do play-by-play for basketball? And going back to my first point on this podcast, Joel, just say yes. I lied and said, of course I do basketball. And I had done basketball, but I'd only done high school basketball, and it was many, many years prior. So he said, great, throw something recent on tape and send it to me. So immediately I hung up the phone and panicked. So what <laughs> I, I literally, I faked it. And I went to my old job uh, that I got through the Newhouse Mafia, my old cable station that I worked for, and I had them pull an old USF basketball game and I had a buddy of mine who wrote for ESPN.com at the time a really good basketball guy serve as my quote-unquote analyst and we faked a live open and then I called the first half of that game from a studio which is now ironic because now ESPN and all the other networks are doing what we call remote broadcasts more and more these days I basically faked what was then called uh, you know what is now called a Remy broadcast, a remote broadcast. I sent that to Chris Farrow, and later that fall, he called me, gave me my first two games at the uh, at Walt Disney World for something that was then called the Old Spice Classic. And my first two games calling college basketball for ESPN was with uh, a legend by the name of Len Elmore. 
and uh, it, everything just kind of built off of that. That was 10 years ago. I had seven games my first season, mostly regional. Then that moved up to 20 games the next season, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. So um, how do you get a job at ESPN? You have to network. You have to, you have to be fearless in your confidence and your ability to get in front of people, um, not just send emails and not just send things by mail, but be willing to meet someone face-to-face. Make that effort. It counts. Um, it scores high on the, on the Q rating chart, if you will. Uh, and, and then be relentless. Don't be annoying, but be, be relentless in your pursuit. Um, another point I always make to youngsters and, and aspiring broadcasters is, uh, you know, don't have a plan B. If this is what you know you want to do, then don't say, well, if this doesn't work out, I could get into marketing. Or if this doesn't work out, I could always go into the family business. Go in with the mindset that I have no other option but to get a job in this field. And uh, if you go in like that, uh, chances are better than good. It, it, you know, if you're, if you're focused and passionate, that something eventually will turn up that you'll be able to dig your feet into and dig your teeth into and and start your career in earnest. And ESPN now, even a decade later, has so many more outlets. The ACC network is about to start up. ESPN Plus, ESPN 3 is a great training ground for aspiring play-by-play. You know, you don't get on TV necessarily, but you're on digital and you're able to get reps. And that's how you get better is getting those reps. So ESPN has plenty of outlets for um, the young and relatively inexperienced play-by-play announcers out there to get the required reps so that you're not caught in that, you know, perpetual catch-22. Well, how can I get experience if you won't hire me to give me the experience? Because how many times have we all at one point in time heard from someone, I'd love to hire you, but you just don't have enough experience. Well, ESPN now has enough outlets, and even the other networks obviously have outlets too. You're doing a podcast right now. Podcasts didn't exist when I was getting into this business. So there are plenty of different media that you can, you know, you can dive into and build not only your career resume, but your life resume, as it were, uh, to give you that experience to, you know, to get a jump start. How much do you watch back now? And uh, what do you watch back for? What sticks with you uh, if you threw on a tape today? I, I record every game I do. Um, I can't say I watch every game I do. I just don't have the time um, or the patience to listen and watch myself uh, all the time. I'm my harshest critic. Um, but I, I do take note of the fact that if you don't critique yourself, it's very hard to count on others to critique you. That's one of the most frustrating things that even someone with my experience, 20-plus years in the business, still runs into is the frustration level of, why aren't my bosses calling me and, and reviewing things with me? You have to make that happen yourself. And the only way to do that, or at least to start that process, is to do it by yourself. And then you, the next step is contact your bosses, your coordinating producers, your executive producers, and say, hey, I was just watching back a game, or I was just watching back uh, a show that I just did, and I noticed a couple of things that I wanted you to take a look at. That's the way to help yourself down the road because if you don't do it no one else is going to do it for you uh once you reach 
the national level, shall we call it, uh, it's the big boy uh, network. And no one's going to take the time, no one has the time uh, or the personnel to individually sit down, you know, every couple of months, let alone every couple of years, and say, hey, I really care about your career and where you're going. Let's sit down and figure out how you can get better at your craft. You have to be the one to invest the time to do that in yourself. And then the other steps hopefully will follow if you have good people who you're working for. And most often, you know, all of us will. What makes good play-by-play? If you if you popped on a college basketball game, uh, what do you want to hear? Um, I want to hear information. I want to hear uh, infotainment, if you will. Um, I, I like to educate people, but I want to entertain them at the same time. So finding that balance, it's a little bit of a tightrope at times, depending on the game. But you let the game tell the story. One thing that's been drilled into my uh, conscience, and now it really is in my sportscasting DNA from spending the last decade at ESPN, is let it breathe. And by that, they mean you don't have to speak over every second of video that the, the sports fan at home is watching. Uh, let it breathe. Let the crowd tell the story. Let the squeaking sneakers on the court tell the story. Uh, sometimes the best play-by-play calls and the biggest moments are when an announcer lays out and doesn't say anything. Um, and the best of the best are the best at that. Vin Scully, uh, as great a storyteller as Vin Scully is, and there hasn't been a better storyteller than Vin Scully, some of his best calls are three or four words, and the rest of it is the moment, carrying the day. So to be able to have that ability um, to let that happen and to not have the insecurity of, oh, gosh, if I don't make a great call right now in this moment, my bosses are going to expose me as the fraud that I am, that I'm not ready for this moment. You have to be ready for the moment, but you also have to have confidence enough in yourself to know the moment is bigger than any one broadcaster. So let it breathe. Let the moment tell the story because that's why people are watching it on TV. They're not watching it to hear what you have to say. They're watching it to see what's happening as it happens. So it's that balance of when I'm speaking, I want to speak in clip tones. I don't want to be giving monologues or, or diatribes or anything like that. I want to you know, reference the action that's happening. And uh, probably the other thing that's equally as important for me is I take tremendous pride in being inquisitive. And uh, that's another thing that I learned coming up the ranks at ESPN and I I take um, very strongly to heart is I want my analyst to feel like I am there for him. I am there in service of my analyst. Tee that guy up. He's the one sitting next to you that has, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years invested in the game, either as a player or as a coach or sometimes maybe even both. But tee them up. Ask questions. Be inquisitive during the game. And something that a lot of people are afraid of, and this also can bleed over into a conversation about sideline reporters, but maybe that's another conversation for another time. The deepest questions get the best answers. And way too many times, people like myself and maybe even you, but certainly I see it in young sideline reporters covering games, feel like they have to prove to everybody how smart they are and how much they know 
before they actually ask a question. Sometimes the best questions are just, why? Why did that happen? You might know why it happened, but it's not your job to tell people why it happened. It's the analyst's job to break down why that happened. So sometimes if you're listening to an analyst next to you and they make a, a comment about something, all you have to do is say, why? And it not only carries the conversation, but it further educates the viewer at home. And more often than not, it's going to be a lot more interesting than anything that you were going to say as someone who has less credibility than that analyst. Rich, where could uh, where can people track you down on social media, or where can they uh, find your work as, as baseball season comes to a close and as we, goodness gracious, get close to college basketball? Yeah, so um, I, I try to stay active on Twitter. It's, it's hard for an old guy like me, but uh, you can find me at Rich on Sports. And um, the only thing, well, I wouldn't say the only thing, but almost the only thing I use Instagram for is uh, to document my food and eating experiences while I'm on the road. <laughs> eating and has become my guilty pleasure through the years because I travel so darn much. I'm on the road probably at minimum 200 to 250 days a year. So uh, I miss my wife and kids terribly, and the way that I, I um, console myself is to make sure I seek out the best and most interesting food and restaurants when I'm on the road. So uh, you can check out my Instagram account, at Rich Hall, R-I-C-H-H-O-L-L, and more often than not, you'll find uh, some, some good food reviews on uh, some of the small towns and some of the big towns across the country. All right, that's Rich Hollenberg joining us here on PXPCast. If you want to catch him right now, the Rays are in Toronto. Uh, They were last night. They are tonight. They are tomorrow, and they are on Sunday. And then they return home to take on the Yankees as we come down the home stretch. Oh, goodness, as we record this, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 regular season games left in the Major League Baseball season. So you can catch Rich Hollenberg that way. And then, of course, when college basketball season ends, really starts to uh, to pick up here in about five or six weeks. It is not all that far away. Uh, and another really good example, by the way, there is no one way to do this. Number one. Number two, never say no to an opportunity. From Home Shopping Network, in a sports-related tie, Rich Hollenberg makes the jump um, to network television and to a Major League Baseball broadcast as well. Um, So it's not the route that you would have planned, most likely, as a broadcaster. Uh, And it's probably not the route you would think of. But it's a route that worked for him. And a a great example that uh, whatever gets laid in front of you, um, consider. Because you never quite know what doors will be opened up. Uh, Many thanks to Rich for joining us on this edition of The Pod. We will talk to you next week right back here on PXPCast. My name is Joel Gaudet, and we're out. I'm